Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Vasey View. This is the podcast where I scratch my itch about the mix between technology and public policy. And I try and interview people who have got something interesting to say about this nexus. I go to different countries, virtually, of course, like France or the Netherlands or Estonia to talk about their policies. I take deep dives into particular sectors like agritech or cybersecurity and I speak to thinkers about tech, and sometimes I speak to politicians, generally ex-politicians like Tony Blair and Malcolm Turnbull. But I'm delighted today to welcome Theo Blackwell, who is the Chief Digital Officer for London. And there are lots of reasons why I want to talk to Theo, and there are lots of reasons why talking to him right now is good timing, because my last podcast was with Saul Klein, who talked about how where his firm, Local Globe, is based, he thinks could be the new Palo Alto. And that place is Camden, where indeed our guest Theo was a councillor for many, many years. So he will know Saul and what is happening in the new Palo Alto extremely well. The other reason it's good timing is because I am an arch procrastinator. So when I should have been preparing for this interview, I was scrolling through Twitter last night and I came across an article by a woman called Julie Samuel, who heads up something called Tech NYC, which is what it does on the tin. It campaigns for joined up tech policy for New York City. And uh, she was calling for a deputy mayor for tech, basically saying New York needs a Theo Blackwell. Even more amusingly, I couldn't actually read the article because it was blocked because of GDPR. But that is a whole other conversation to have. And the third reason, without wishing to sound too weird and creepy, that I want to interview Theo is that I really want his job. And I noticed that he has exactly the same degree as me, modern history from the University of Oxford. So clearly, I don't need to be some techie who started coding at the age of five, although we may find out that Theo did indeed code from the age of five to do the outstanding job that I think Theo is doing, which you're going to find out from this podcast, because there's lots of innovation going on in London. I should stress, by the way, that London has a Labour mayor who's just been re-elected. I'm a Conservative, but this podcast is above party politics. I'm interested in finding out what Theo's been doing, and I suspect if a Tory mayor had been elected, he or she might well have followed very similar policies. The fact is, London needs a Theo. Uh, Theo, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's great to be here uh, today. Ed, thank you for the introduction. Brilliant. Now tell us, I started with my creepy thing about how I wanted your job. How did you come to be the chief digital officer? Because you have followed a sort of public policy career, but you don't necessarily have a huge tech background, as it were. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting story about how London uh, came to this point. And actually, where you started with New York calling for uh, more uh, leadership in the digital space, the idea originated from Mayor Bloomberg's New York, where they appointed the first chief digital officer to oversee their strategic digital transformation and engagement with their tech sector, because they felt they were being kind of outcompeted by Silicon Valley. And they said, well, why, why don't we have massive tech clusters in New York? And we've got better restaurants and um, and a cultural offer and all of these other things that Palo Alto apparently doesn't. So Tech UK, this uh, tech sector lobbying group, London First, uh, a couple of interested councils got together, coordinated by Bloomberg Philanthropies to craft what a chief digital officer would look like for London. That was in 2015. And 
one of the principal things they wanted to solve is that obviously the UK's got a very federated uh, local government structure and London is at once, you've got big institutions like TfL, Transport for London, that have a real track record of smart city initiatives right across the city. And they've done congestion charge, which is arguably one of the first modern smart city initiatives, contactless pavement. And then on the other hand, you've got these 32 boroughs, each with their own innovation record. And that presents quite a confusing picture to the tech clusters that have been growing in London over the last decade. So could we find some strategic leadership in City Hall to bring that together, to maximise benefits for citizens and create the opportunities for growth? That, in a nutshell, is the reason for uh, a Chief Digital Officer for London. And how did you come to get the role, Theo? Well, there was an open uh, process of appointment. I put myself forward because I, I sort of brought two things to the game. One is uh, I was in London local government, so I understood it. I was in London Borough of Camden. and I'd seen the transformation of Hoban and King's Cross and, and actually Camden Town into significant tech clusters. And we were thinking as a council at the time, how do we take advantage of this, meet needs of residents and also bring more technology and more innovation into the council in my day job, uh, because councillors often have uh, other interests apart from what they do in the evenings and on the weekends and the rest of their life. I, I worked for the video games industry. So I was also seeing how data was transforming the games industry, overtaking film and music and and seeing how that was really, you know, creating products and services that were just improving the enjoyment and experience of people. So I seen data from two sides, really. I seen data in transforming the council and data also in the commercial sphere. So I thought I had the um, that was basically my my pitch. And one of the things you mentioned in your introduction, which was the establishment of the London Office of Technology and Innovation was something that I'd been working on. And I said, oh, actually, this is what London needs. Brilliant. Well, we're going we're gonna to drill into the detail like Loti and other things, but just give us a, a kind of step back overview of your kind of approach. I mean, you, to a certain extent you have in terms of how the position of Chief Digital Officer came about, but when you approach any kind of issue that's a tech issue uh, that we're going to drill into, kind of what, what is your thinking and your approach about what how you approach it? You talk about uh, in some of your interviews, for example, of which the government digital service talks about as well, you know, what is the user need? Just give us a your elevator pitch. Yeah, so I, I've been heavily, heavily influenced by uh, sort of generation one of the government digital service. I thought that was a remarkable innovation by yeah, so the government I. at the time. And, you know, the work of Mike Bracken, Tom Lucemore and team on establishing those principles of how you should design technology around user need. And that, that almost is in direct contrast to that idea of technology, smart cities is a kind of top-down thing. It's actually built up from user needs. So so really, my in terms of my elevator pitch, is that how can we bring that user design tradition into where I think it applies most appropriately, the products and services that are experienced by citizens on the ground, and most of them in the United Kingdom, actually experienced by a local government rather than national government. I, I come from that tradition. Our approach is essentially champion user-centered design, get better with data, fix the plumbing on connectivity, invest in talent and skills, and also create those institutions that are needed for collaboration. That five-step approach uh, underlines what London is doing in phase one of uh, our Smarter London work. 
I should have written that down because then you, you've given me the agenda for the rest of the podcast. But luckily, I, I have done a bit of research in between surfing Twitter. So let's start with what I call the boring stuff, but it's actually essential. And there are kind of two sides to this, two angles to this debate. The first is obviously you can't do anything digitally unless you've got great broadband in London. And counterintuitively, there are some parts of London which still don't have fantastic broadband. What is your kind of input into, frankly, getting the fibre under the roads to properties in London? Well, I mean, as you'll know from your, your, your own experience in government, it's sort of easier said than done to transition from that kind of copper legacy that London is built on, which has supported the growth of our technology sector to a certain point, but it really needs to be fixed if we're going to make that leap through into 5G and then beyond. So first of all, uh, we needed to, uh, I think the government calls it barrier bust, I'd say reduce, reduce the friction, promote investment in London through making it easier for telcos to dig up roads right across the city. So we put in that human resource so that all of those administrative hurdles, if you jump over borough boundaries, are, are sorted out. And we've also created consistent ways of doing things, sort of legal agreements called way leave. So these are all kind of like really complicated rather non-headline things that are really important, actually, for CEOs of companies if they want to invest in your area. And secondly, we've made a really major play using Transport for London, who are in the midst of negotiating a concession, which is laying hundreds of kilometres of fibre using tunnels and ducting and buildings public buildings uh, identified by London's 32 boroughs to create a fibre backbone for London so that that last mile dig for infrastructure providers can be filled with copper, uh, filled, sorry, filled with fibre rather than copper. And we can solve the problem of underserved areas being served. This fibre background was originally is for the tube. It's for the signalling system, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's for the mobile mobile connectivity, and it's linked with the emergency services network. It's it's now providing a, a mobile signal on tube. So when I was uh, in uh, seeing the uh, re-elected mayor of London, I made a phone call for the first time to my partner on the Jubilee line. Now that that technology <laughs> of providing the mobile signal also provides the fibre, and so. What we've done is essentially provide uh, that backbone and then link that to hubs around tube stations in the network so that London now has that coverage. And of course, this is important for the future because 5G is not standalone technology. It needs that full fibre to be in place to take the next step. So this kind of this what we call Connected London programme essentially is fixing the plumbing, the modern plumbing of London. So... I think that is amazing because, funny enough, I was on the Jubilee line on Tuesday night going to the Brits, risking my life, obviously, for, for others in order to show that live events can work. It's, it's quite interesting how, what a kind of bugbear this has been, being able to get a signal on the underground. Because I was underground on the 
Jubilee Light. And I suddenly noticed I had a 5G signal. I said, something has changed. <laughs> but the other thing when I read about this, which really annoyed me about what you've done, is because I discovered when I was the broadband minister that Network Rail had laid 10,000 kilometers of dark fiber. And try as I might, I could not get them to open it up. You know, it would have been perfect for rural areas. And it was Absolutely. just such a good example of how people build this infrastructure in silos. You know, they've spent a billion quid on this fiber. And as far as I'm aware, it's useless for broadband. And yet you've gone and done it with the tube. It's so annoying. <laughs> well, it also raises money for TFL as well, because yes. it's a concession. So that's, you know, it will raise substantial amounts of money to reinvest back into the tube system. So I think, you know, cities need to be really active in their digital approach because the new things that we need to provide connectivity, fiber and 5G, you essentially need assets to put them in. Who has most of the assets in the city? Well, in one shape or another, government and the public sector. I'll tell you one thing just quickly is whether or not you think councils, I mean, obviously don't want to lead you into trouble, but whether councils, local councils really do get it because I was told a story, which I think is true, that for 5G masks, for example, you can put them on lampposts, but in one borough, the lamppost people said to the infrastructure people, you're not putting a mast on our lampposts. There are lampposts. Our job is to look after lampposts. They're lampposts. They're not mobile phone masks. Does there need to be sort of more joining up at the sort of borough level for people to realise that um, you know, this is going to benefit everyone and you've got to work together to make this happen? Well, I mean, I think government's created quite a permissive environment for the putting up of, of uh, mobile uh, masts. And you know, in local democracy, I think it's legitimate for people to say, I don't want something that despoils or reduces the amenity of my area, makes it more cluttered. But that's why we put in a team of people that, on the one hand, links with the telcos, but also with the boroughs themselves, so that we can just smooth through some of these issues. And I think... You know, it's a funny thing to say when you when you look at a council, but often one of the most difficult things a council has to do is that I've encountered with connectivity. Is you were trying to lay uh, a piece of fibre that goes through some housing land across a main road run by TfL, past a private estate, an upper lamppost. You're suddenly talking to about eight different professionals. It's a nightmare. And I certainly think that the council's absolutely been on a journey. We're in a much better place now where councils realise the potential that connectivity can bring to the area than they were perhaps when when you were, were minister. And, you know, part of the challenge is saying it's in everybody's interests that we get more connected. You know, it takes a lot of explaining, but I think we've definitely made progress. So the other angle on this, you deliver the fantastic fibre, but there is the digital divide is also obviously income related, skills related. So... You also want to kind of bring much more digital inclusion to London. What are you trying to do to help, you know, low-income families access broadband and, and that kind of thing? One of the main programmes in the what's called the, re the recovery programme for London, for our city to build back better after the crisis, it's called Digital Access, and I lead that. And that brings together uh, the programme we've just discussed, plus London's responsibility as of September last year, to provide skills for Londoners, devolved powers to us. So we've got an entitlement for every adult to have 
basic digital skills training if they have low or no digital skills. So that's freely available from your local college. And I think what the crisis showed us as well was that there were tens of thousands of children who couldn't learn online. There are very, very many older people who didn't have a device or an affordable connection. I think the challenge for us, and and you'll know this as your time as a minister, is that a lot of the, it's really easy to express sort of concern over this because we can say a third of this group is underserved or there's a particular problem with this cohort. But we've never really treated digital inclusion like a service and say, if you present yourself to a GP surgery, council customer service centre, or a voluntary group that's supported by the corporate sector to get people digitally included. How do we triage that need and say, yeah, okay, you can have free skills over here, or maybe we can find a way to upcycle a device and get you a device. And I think one of the challenges for the corporate sector with digital access, because there are a whole host of really good initiatives from businesses, is that they quite often, and perhaps, and during the crisis, certainly the case, came up with offers saying, well, we will give you free dongles and low-cost connections if you tell us who needs them. You know, we weren't able to tell, we, we had real trouble receiving that offer and giving it to those actual individuals because we, we're still dealing with it at too abstract a level. So what we want to do is basically find a way to triage that need So when someone presents themselves, they can get what they need in order to have a more fulfilling experience online. Now, that's, you know, a fairly difficult ask, but I don't think we can carry on like this where we're just, you know, expressing concern and not being very effective at delivering that. Uh, I think that's a brilliant point. I mean, I think... uh... It was always my problem that uh, it felt too abstract, uh, the kind of digital divide. You, you didn't really know what it meant. And to a certain extent, I took a slightly, maybe it was a slightly crude view that particularly, uh, you know, lots of people were, particularly obviously young people, able to kind of adapt and, and find their way through. But kind of understanding what the problem is, who generally needs help, and also providing access points like a GP surgery, for example, or, you know, encouraging GPs to ask people and say, well, actually, you can go, there's one front door you can walk through if, if you've got gaps in your either skills or your infrastructure and your equipment. I'm sort of hopping about a bit here, but I've got a lot of things I want to talk to you about. So I now want to be very clunking through the gears from this inclusion to data. And I'm very excited by the London Data Store. And it's got kind of, it is like a store because it's got quite a lot of things in it. I think, again, just as the pandemic highlighted the digital divide and the need for genuine leaning in on digital inclusion and knowing who needs the help and what help they need, uh, I think your thesis is that COVID, more than anything, highlighted the need for great data and that you kind of leaned into the data sources in order to give yourself real-time information about the impact that COVID was having on London, particularly on its economy. So talk us through, I think it was called the Odysseus Project. Yeah. So London's had a data platform for about 10 years, starting with that kind of great shift in 2010 on open data. So it has a central register of where quite a lot of the official data is, and public sector data is in London. In, in times of a crisis or when you're developing a really big programme, for example, on the environment or the or the economy, Open data only gets you so far. 
What you need is the ability to share secure, secure data safely. As we've been developing the city data platform, we've kind of advanced the view of open data into the idea of shareable and secure data as well. So the data store now contains this platform where we share uh, a lot of data which has some form of sensitivity around us between parties. And when the crisis happened, there was the not unreasonable ask from city leaders, tell us what was going on in the economy. And if we just relied on government open data sets, we'd kind of know what was happening on a monthly level. It would have been not very useful to know what was going on actual high streets, of which we have 600 in London. And uh, it just gives it's just too slow. And of course, these city leaders were also getting like reams, you know, after a while, reams of public health information. So there's a real sort of you know, difference between what you're seeing happening health-wise and then on the economy, the, the data sets really weren't there. So we partnered with the Alan Turing Institute, a research institute, Microsoft UK, and our own team at the uh, data store to pivot an existing project, which, which was measuring air quality in London using artificial intelligence uh, derived from TfL's network of 900 cameras to measure the busyness of London streets. So that used the camera network to take snapshots in time to say, you know, here's how many cars and here's an estimate of pedestrians on given streets and feed it into other data sources. We then talked to mobile phone company O2 and MasterCard provider of spending data to bring that together so we could have an idea about movement and spending at certain times of the day in various parts of the city. So that is now plugged into the decision-making process where we can direct funds, hopefully more, more effectively. And I suppose, you know, you've been in a leadership position. It's just like that confidence that when you have the data, you can make bolder decisions. And that was the aim of the, the project. And so for the first time, we've been able to bring together open data sets and private data sets that we might have used individually all together at once. I think that is really fascinating, actually, for reasons I wasn't quite expecting, because I hadn't appreciated that you were sort of taking uh, shots on the high street and uh, using mobile phone data to kind of work out, you know, where is everyone, as it were. And, you know, I remember once being told by the head of a supermarket, and they were, in my view, quite right, you know, if the Chancellor wants to know what's happening in the UK economy, he should talk to the head of every supermarket every week, because they will tell you six weeks before whether there's a recession on the way. And what, what I think is fascinating as well is that I read in Mark Carney's book, I'm hoping to do a podcast with him shortly, you know, he was talking about how you lend to small businesses. And he said you kind of have to upend, in the digital age, you should upend your thinking. And you should say, you know, look at this small business's social media presence. It may have no revenue, but has it got 100,000 followers, that kind of thing. What I'm getting to is, surely this now changes your view, or well, well, you made it happen, but it's not this is not just for covid this is forever you know you you can monitor london's economy in real time and you can onboard more and more technology as it comes on stream i mean i think that's fascinating yeah and that's that's ultimately the aim of this is to provide more active insights for policymakers i mean this this project is morphed into something we call the high streets data partnership and so you can imagine things like uh, councils looking at some of the regulations they lay down, whether they need them or not, whether specific high streets are doing well or not. And, you know, some interesting findings can come from that. You know, whether you have a DIY warehouse 
at the end of one high street could mean that some high streets are doing better because more there's more footfall during the crisis than not. Mm. What's the impact on the central activity centre, the centre of town, where there was so much of a cultural offer? And, you know, intuitively, you know that it would take a hit. But again, you could look at it almost street by street on what needs to happen. And of course, I think there's some wider applications here that we're exploring. So, you know, um, the government and Transport for London agreed a programme on low traffic neighbourhoods. So what's the relationship between pedestrian build-outs and cycle-friendly areas and the local economy? So these things support, you know, not just for crisis, but actually support our conception of London as, as we look forward. So I'm not going to go down a rabbit hole of um, how you can use data to plan your roadworks better, but I, w- I want to move on to the, the London Office of Technology and Innovation kind of takes this down one step, if you like, because we've You've talked earlier about borough leadership and coordinating the boroughs, certainly on infrastructure and broadband rollout. But the London Office of Technology Innovation is, I think, 16 boroughs that are leaning into tech, coming together under your leadership, under City Hall's leadership, to work on issues, look at opportunities. Its aim was to solve that challenge that was set to us by the tech sector and some of the boroughs in 2015, that London had a collaboration deficit. It's not just London, actually. It's just, a, you know, there's a challenge right across the UK government about how do you how do you get councils to work together, exactly. essentially providing the same services across administrative boundaries. You can pass all the laws you want. In practice, there needs to be a kind of community of interest and a shared purpose. And like the, the old model of kind of saying, uh, well, you know, you should just all share services. It's just administratively cumbersome, over-legalistic, and probably is good if you want to do something simple. But what if you want to experiment on use of Internet of Things to care for older people or, you know, do a punt on a, on a risky project? Those are top heavy vehicles. We need something that's lighter and more adaptive to get councils to work together, not just because they're next to each other. Is you know, Croydon and Camden might come together on a certain project because they've got shared interests. So our, our aim was to create something more adaptable. So we've got a, a team of data people and team of designers based at London councils, funded by us, funded by membership of these uh, 19 boroughs now, it's grown, and they do shared projects together. Those not familiar with London, just quickly, that's about half the boroughs of London. That's right, yeah, so there's 32 boroughs in London, so 19 now, so that's, you know, a very significant chunk of London, you know, population of about 5 million in total in in governed population by these 19 boroughs. And so their technologists and their designers get together and say, okay, what are the things that actually we're thinking of doing or we're doing that we could do together? And we've adopted those GDS principles, government digital service design principles. They all have to use those principles in order to be a member of London Office of Technology and Innovation and so that we can do things collectively. And so I think the outcome of this is that London technology, public service technology has actually been a really exciting place to be. We've attracted more people who used to be at government digital service essentially are now chief digital officers of councils. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, I wondered what it was that was pulling them back in. And this this is partly it. Yeah, that's yeah, they come to London, you know, so Greenwich and uh yeah, yeah, exactly. and, and Croydon have people who the CDO of Croydon was uh, behind gov.uk, uh Neil Williams. So so we've created a place where the talent comes and also 
some really exciting projects that we've been looking at. Some of them are kind of fix the plumbing stuff necessary to go further. And other ones are, you know, looking at how we embed uh, things like, you know, as I mentioned, uh, Internet of Things with devices with older people doing data projects to sort out our electric vehicle charging infrastructure. These are all like the really necessary things that also says to the market and the tech sector, hey, come and play in London, come and invest here, because we're sorting, we're getting rid of all that friction that you might have perceived as being in the way and also providing that front of door for you to have a conversation. That's brilliant. And again, just as there are two angles to the infrastructure and digital inclusion, there's also an angle here, which is London Office of Technology and Innovation bringing boroughs together to do some difficult but important work but there's also the civic innovation program which is the other side of it which is getting startups involved in coming up with interesting and exciting ideas for the public good i think they're looking at things like housing countering extremism other things yeah one of one of the one of the big problems i think with public service innovation dealing with the tech community around us public sector sometimes isn't very good at explaining what the problem is that needs to be solved. And you will have experienced this in central government and certainly no different in local government. We've got a kind of stakeholder language. Maybe it's a little bit abstract. You know, we intuitively know what the problem is, but when explaining it to kind of real world people who run businesses, the problem to be solved isn't as clear. And so the combination of this, these new sort of institutions that we put together and those design principles have enabled us to say, you know, in a sense, train people to come together and say, this is the problem that we need to solve so that we can get that kind of array of problem solvers from startups and scale ups to come in and help us. So the approach is known as an open call approach or open innovation approach, which your listeners from other cities will be aware of. And so what we started with is we piloted a a program. We've had a round of cohorts, everything from trialing curbside electric vehicle charging. So, you know, bits of the curb you can plug your car into, your electric vehicle into, to uh, working with the Metropolitan Police to combat online extremism, as you say, um, which is now uh, the product that spun out of that is now a national service. So people can confidently and confidentially report their concerns about online extremist content that they or their family members encounter uh, to our early stages of like 3D modeling and planning to support the, the housing system. So that program is now, it was, was, was successful and, you know, in two ways, actually. One is it did actual things. So we got good products and services that came from it and the engagement with the tech sector was brilliant. And secondly, by bringing public servants together, even if they didn't choose that product or it didn't win in the end, the journey that they went on made them think, actually, I could use this approach on something else. So it has that indirect byproduct of like opening the minds, challenging silos in the public sector so that we could more actively engage that kind of fantastic resource of the tech community around us. So this, this program is now part of our recovery program. And there's actually an open set of open calls out uh, at the moment that uh, people can see on the Mayor of London's website called Challenge London. And we're looking to do the same thing for the priorities uh, set out by London Council's Mayor of London to build back better. Fantastic. And overlaying all of this work that you're doing, I was interested to find out about the Emerging Tech Charter, 
as I understand it, you're doing all this incredible digital work, but you've also got out for consultation, put forward an ethical charter, which is about how, how you deploy tech in a big city like London, the kind of ethical principles that it should follow. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I, actually, the first week I joined the Mayor of London, the Uber dispute between the mayor and, yes. and Uber, and T, T, well, TFL, I should say, and, and Uber came to pass. And it was really interesting because in a sense that was sort of like, some, some of the reaction to that was what I would classify as pre-tech lash. It was sort of saying, you know, sort of, what are you doing laying down rules or enforcing rules? You know, sort of let a thousand flowers bloom. And I think we've just travelled quite a long way since then. And it's, you know, soon after that, there was a big challenge put to the city of Toronto about what Sidewalks Lab were proposing. Oh, yes, the Google the Google project. The, yeah, uh, on building a part of the city, as they said, from the internet up. And I think there is a, you know, and, and we've had GDPR put in place uh, in the UK data protection law. And there's ongoing debates about facial recognition. We need a, a way to structure and inform discussions about emerging technologies so that cities are kind of like at once a home to technologies, but not caught on the hop when they suddenly drop in our streets and in our public services. So the Emerging Tech Charter is essentially a guide to innovators and public servants and transparent to the public on how we'd like to see technology trialled and deployed ultimately. And it's learning the lessons from the things that we've done, whether it's Transport for London or the Metropolitan Police with live facial recognition technology, saying, well, you should communicate with the public openly. You should have a way for them to communicate back to you. There should be a way in which you show the legal basis for what you're doing. And you should be transparent about what you do. And one of the key principles of the Emerging Tech Charter, which we've designed with innovators and we've uh, talked to citizens and uh, their elected representatives about, is that the legal obligation to do a data impact assessment, uh, which is part of the law, and the ICO encourages you to publish this openly, there's a role for City Hall to provide a place for that. And so going back to our discussion about the data store, is that we can provide a home for people's data protection impact assessments so they can be in the open and transparent. And I think transparency lends itself towards good practice. What we don't want is if something blows up with technology, quick, you know, as we saw with the NHS app, people quite often say, well, you know, where's your data protection impact assessment? And, you know, and, and the institution is seen as sort of like having been forced <laughs> to publish it, as opposed to right from the outset saying, look, this is what we're doing, might involve a trade-off, Here's the legal basis, and here's here's our thinking. Go, and I think the I think we need to bring technology more out into the open because the challenge for most Londoners, uh, they're willing to accept a trade off with technology that might bring them benefit, but they've got a legitimate concern about black box technology or things that aren't clear to them. There's no reason why there can't be clear statements about what technology does and what principles have been involved. And that's really what lies behind the technology, uh, the Emerging Technology Charter of creating a consistent process of bringing this out into the open so we can have a discussion. You know, yes, there'll be challenge, but at least there's, there's a clear set of principles behind it. 
I'm glad I've sort of semi-ended on on that note because I think, you know, hearing you explain what you're doing in such clear terms, I mean, it's it's one of those things where, you know, and I started in a sort of facetious manner that every city needs a Theo, but of course, every city does need a chief digital officer. And, and, and the fact that, you know, I think out of your role, as it were, has emerged this emerging tech charter, you know, you think now with technology coming at us so fast and impacting us in so many ways as citizens, as opposed to consumers not having some kind of tech charter. In fact, I don't even know if the British government has a kind of tech charter about how tech should be deployed by the national government. Seems so obvious and important, but I think it only comes about because there is your role focused on this. And I started by saying, I don't know if New York, does New York still have a chief digital officer? Yeah, yeah, uh, John, uh, jo- John Farmer, yeah, yeah. They want to upgrade to a, to a deputy, deputy mayor, but... I wanted to end by thinking about what cities you admire. So you're doing this incredible work in London. Are there other cities that you look at saying, I want to be like them one day, they're ahead of us, or hello to my neighbour here, they're doing very similar things to us. I mean, I think Paris, for example, has come Mm. quite a long way. Uh, You mentioned uh, Toronto. Are there any other cities that you think, hmm, if I had a bit more money or a bit more flexibility, I'd like to do what they're doing? Yeah, I, I we we work really closely with the city of Helsinki. Oh, interesting. That wasn't a name I was expecting. So that's good. Yeah. So so we they 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 have a really pragmatic and progressive view of the use of technology. Uh, they've just been through a big city hall reform. They appointed a CDO, Miko Rusama, and uh, we do quite a lot of work uh, on them thinking about things like the emerging tech charter and AI ethics. Uh, similarly, City of Amsterdam and Geir Baron, who's the uh, Chief Digital Officer there. City of San Francisco, first to do an emerging tech charter, slightly different powers to us because they've got the power of giving permits that gives us like leverage on the uh, on the tech sector. But um, Carrie Bishop, uh, who is a Brit, who's the C- CDO there, we've learned a lot of uh, lessons from and other than that, actually, we've got a very strong network through Horizon Europe, which is the European Commission funded program, which we are still in. And um, <laughs> we've worked extremely closely with uh, the city of uh, Milan on deploying smart city technologies uh, in, ne- in neighbourhoods. And so we hope those kind of relationships will continue. We are invested in those relationships continuing over time because Things that are scaled well or things that are invented well in London through those links can be scaled in other European cities. Broadly speaking, you know, we have got the, the same approach to it, same laws. And, you know, we, we've got we're very hopeful for the future. These you, you locate yourself in London, you work with us on city improvements that also creates markets elsewhere in in Europe in particular. Brilliant. Well, Theo, thank you so much. That was a brilliant tour de force. I mean, it's interesting all the amount of work that's being done, and yet technology did not feature really at all in the mayoral campaign. It's not really a kind of political issue that, apart from broadband connectivity, it's not a massive political issue. And yet, in my view, I mean, I'm obsessed by it because I keep saying to government ministers, you really leaned into the government digital service. You, you could, in four years, make more difference to citizens' lives. And any amount of kind of front page headline policy initiatives. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, t- I, well, I totally agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. We're on a note of agreement. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.